If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to uh, open them up to Acts chapter 1. And uh, we'll be taking a break from our Ephesians series, and we'll be picking that back up in, the sp- uh, in January. So I wanted to spend some time over the next four weeks thinking about uh, the Advent and the coming of Jesus and Christmas and what that means for us here and now. And so uh, I'll read Acts chapter 1. We'll be in verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the very day when he was taken up after he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait, to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into the heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word and thank you that it is true. Thank you that a young man or a young woman or an old man or an old woman can keep their ways pure by searching your word. That blessed is the man or woman or child who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. Thank you that we can read and now expound your holy word. Would you speak through your servant that your name might be exalted and that we might be conformed more into the image of our maker. Help us, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Tim Keller, in his book, Hidden Christmas, he has an introduction to the book, and here's what he writes. He says, Christmas is the only Christian holiday that is also a major secular holiday, arguably our culture's biggest The result is that two different celebrations, each observed by millions of people at the very same time, because of the commercial indispensability of Christmas, it will remain with us as a secular festival. My fear is, however, that its true roots will become more and more hidden to most of the population. Every year, our society becomes more unaware of its own historical roots, many of which are fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so that's how Keller begins his devotional book, and I I commend it to you. But here's what he's saying. He's saying that right now, there are two things happening. 
On the one hand, if you're a Christian, Advent signals and triggers and it, it, it causes you to think about some important things. But because of the commercial indispensability of Christmas, namely companies needing to make fourth quarter profits, that Christmas also turns into something else where there are sales and discounts and shopping frenzies. And what he's saying is that there, there are two realities happening at once. On the one hand, if you're a believer, that we're approaching Christmas or should be approaching Christmas one way, but the world is also approaching the same holiday with a different bent. And here's the danger. The danger is that somewhere in the middle, the true realities of Christmas will remain hidden. And so what I want to do for the next few weeks is sort of uncover some of the central truths about Advent and Advent season and Christmas and what it means and what it meant and how it might help us better uh, appropriate this time of year. And the first thing I want us to think through is, is that whereas the world would focus in on one advent, well, the world, even if it's, it's getting close to what we would consider a right way to approach Christmas, they would draw our attention to one advent, right? And here's what the Bible proclaims that we're not just celebrating one Advent, that we're celebrating two. And I'll unpack this and, and unpack and, and tell you what I think it means. But if you'll notice in Acts chapter one, it says in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, OK, well, if Acts is the second book, then what is the first book? And if you turn over to Luke chapter one, you'll get a sense for uh, what Luke is doing. If you turn to Luke chapter one, you don't have to, I'll read it. But in Luke chapter one, listen to what, how Luke begins that book. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. Look at verse three. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things which you have been taught. In other words, here's what's happening. Luke was written by the physician Luke, and you get that from Colossians chapter 4. So the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke was a physician, but he was contracted out by a wealthy man by the name of Theophilus. And so Theophilus is so wealthy that one, look at what he calls him, most excellent Theophilus. And so you get this sense that this is a dignitary. This is some important man who had come to faith through the preaching of the apostles or through the hearing of the word. And so this man has enough money to tell Luke, hey, you stop practicing medicine and I want you to go and investigate everything that I've been that I've heard. And so that's what Luke does. Luke takes a break from practicing medicine to go and get eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And so Luke tells you, I can tell you who was king when Jesus was born. I can tell you where Jesus was born. I checked temple documents and I can tell you his genealogy. And, and that's what Luke does in, 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 the, in the gospel of Luke. He goes and, and, and gets eyewitness account. But notice where he starts. He starts with the first incarnation, that when we think about Christmas and Advent, we automatically go to Luke. And you see Luke chapter one, when the angel shows up 
in the city of Galilee, you see Luke chapter 2 when, when Jesus is born, right? So, so Luke goes and, and gives eyewitness account. And so you turn over to Acts and notice how he begins Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do. In other words, in Luke's mind, this initial coming of Jesus was important and it was real that God took on flesh and was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and was born of a woman and born under the law. And Luke starts his gospel account with that message like this is so important that the Messiah has come and he picks it up again in this text. I have dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do. In other words, Luke is making a case, a critical case that the first advent was really good news. But he doesn't stop there. Look at the end of the passage that we've selected. Look at verse 11. And this is Luke again, right? Look at verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood beside them in white robes. So first of all, Luke again is telling us what he heard or what he saw. He says, look, there were two men, not two women. And they were wearing white robes and not brown robes. And we think these are angels, actually, right? And look what he says. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Notice how Luke bookends this first section. He came. He conquered. He died. He was raised. He's ascended to the right hand of the father. And guess what? He's coming again in the same way that he left. And that's the testimony of the angels. He is coming again. And what does this mean for us? It means that we must not focus, focus on the first advent alone because the world would have us to think that Christmas is about a little baby born in a manger. And it is. But Luke says it's also more than that. You got to tell the whole story, right? That Luke joins these two advents together seamlessly and across the ages, the church has as well. Think about the Apostles' Creed, what we just read. Notice the second line. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died and was buried. He descended into the into the grave. And the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the father. And you know how it finishes. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. You see what the confession does? You see what the Apostles' Creed does? It unites the incarnation, the first advent, the first coming of Jesus with the second one. We drove to Canada uh, this summer and I was against it, right? And my wife was like, babe, let's just drive. I'm like, babe, we just, I don't want to drive that long, right? And it ended up being a blessing. I, I loved her more for that. It slowed us down. It got us in the car together and... But here's the thing that we notice when you drive from Jackson, Mississippi to Toronto, Canada. You see a lot of red tailed hawks on the interstate that have been hit. Right. And I, I just didn't pay attention to it. But we were on the road so long and I got to thinking like, man, how is it that these hawks are getting hit by cars? And then if you do some research, you understand why that they have like vision that is off the charts. If they see something move, they're on it. And that, that precise vision, it actually turns into a vice 
because they can see a rabbit or a squirrel or a little bird floundering under the tree line and about, about the interstate, they see it. And here's what happens. Here is what happens. They have laser precision on this rabbit, right, that's moving towards the interstate. And they're so blinded by their prey that they're moving in that they don't see this other reality. And the other reality is this Ford F-150 coming down the interstate going 90 miles an hour. They, they see this right here. They're so focused on this prey that they don't understand that they're getting hit every time. And so you see the interstate littered with them. Why? Because their vision is so good. And it's on this reality right here that they don't see that they're about to be blindsided by this reality. That's a picture of the world where we would draw all our attention and it's good attention and it's right attention on the first coming of Jesus in a manger. You're going to put it up around your house. Here's a danger. You don't see the other reality that's coming. That the Christ who came once is not still in a manger. He's on the throne. He came once as, a man, as, a, as an infant. He came once under the cover of night. He came once to a small city in the Middle East. He came once not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He came once, but that is not how he's returning. He is not returning as a little infant. He's returning on the throne. He is not returning to pay the penalty for sin. He's done that once and for all on the cross. And therefore, we live between two advents. And that's good news. And it's terrifying news. See, it's good news if you've trusted in Christ. It's good news if your body's being affected by cancer. And you've placed your hope and trust in Christ. It's good news when you see injustice in our world and you wonder, can things get better? Will things get better? The second return of Christ will put everything in order, even you. But here's the bad news. The bad news is this. Is if you are not a believer and you think that Jesus is going to come back weak and powerless, you're going to be blindsided by his wrath. And that's why in our quote this morning in our bulletins, read what Augustine wrote. And I mean, I think he he nails it. Right. He says the first coming of Christ, God's son and our God was in obscurity. The second will be in the sight of the whole world. When he came in obscurity, no one recognized him but his own servants. When he comes openly, he will be known by both good people and bad people. When he came in obscurity, it was to be judged. It was to be judged. When he comes openly, it will be to judge. We live between two advents, not one. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is what then do we do while we live between them? And whereas the world would say, celebrate, celebrate, celebrate the first coming. Jesus says, I want you to celebrate, but I want you to participate in the advent. Now, I'll get to it uh, and show you what I mean by that. In an almost comical way, Luke shows us how the disciples, if they had been left to themselves, 
would have spent their time between the first and final coming. Look at, look at verse 6, that as they're speaking with the resurrected Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> Think about the question, right? Jesus, is now the time? Is now the time when you will make our enemies our footstool? Is now the time when we will sit on your right and your left and rule with you? Is now the time that you're exalting us above all the nations on the earth? Are we your prized possession right now? Are you restoring dignity to Israel right now? Can we rule with you, baby? Like, I mean, really, that's what they're asking, right? I don't know if you watch Stranger Things. I'm not recommending the show. I'm just saying... uh, it's almost like they think they got 11 on their squad. If you, know, you know who 11 is if you've watched Stranger Things. But she can just like think things and manipulate reality. I, I kind of think that, that that's what's behind their view of Jesus. They've seen him walk on water. They've seen him feed multitudes. They've seen him put a man's ear back on that's been cut off, right? Just, just put it back on there. They've seen him go into the ground, right? They've seen soldiers fall back when he says, I am, right? Just by him saying, I'm the one you're looking for, they fall back. And so it's this idea that, man, look who we got on our team, right? I get it. I get it, right? But if you would have asked them, they might have rewritten the rest of your Bibles with Jesus mounting on a Trojan horse to overthrow the Roman government, speaking mere words, and they die. And there it is right in his left. Who can stop us, Jesus? Getting their blessings from Jesus. All glory, no grit. All gain, no pain. All favor, no friction. Jesus, you have come to give me my best life right now. And that's a lie. But look at verse 9. Jesus was lifted up and the cloud took him out of their sight. What did, did they do? They were gazing into heaven as he went. They just stood there, right? Their meal ticket just kind of vanishes out of their sight, right? They, they, they just watch him that they've been with for three years, and he just goes out of the sky. And, and Luke says, man, they just stood there looking. And the angels had to come and say, what are you doing? What are you doing, right? That there's the meal ticket right there, right? Luke doesn't tell us how long they would have stayed there. He doesn't tell us what they were thinking but he does highlight that they were paralyzed. They were lost. They didn't have purpose. What do we do now when you're gone? How do we spend our lives? What do we pursue? And I think before we throw them under the bus and say, how could they be so self-centered to think that Jesus came to serve them alone? How could they not know that Jesus changes everything, that life cannot go back to normal when you have an encounter with the living God? We are like them. He's given us a window into the human heart that two things will drive us, and it is our selfishness. We will think that Jesus Christ came to serve our agenda, to make us great, to give us, elevate us above our haters. They can hate, you elevate, right? You you hear this kind of stuff where you actually have people telling you that Jesus is here to make you have your best life now. And he's going to let you shine and rise above all of your haters, right? He's going to bless you in front of them, right? You hear this kind of stuff and here is Jesus. I mean, it's, it's actually, I, that's us, right? And you hear it this time of year. People want days off. They want time off. But nothing to do with Jesus. Oh, you came, little baby, you came to give me these two weeks off and for me to have all this downtime have nothing to do with Jesus, right? Nothing. It's the same ideology driving it, right? 
a lack of purpose. How many people would have a real answer to why I'm alive? What is the chief end of man to work, to make a name for myself, to climb up the corporate ladder, to own my own business, to boss up? The human heart craves something to pursue. And I can guarantee you that the disciples would not have stayed there looking in the sky for long. Their hearts would have went after something. Maybe I'm going to do a book deal. I'm going to sell the the, the testimonies of Jesus for profit. you got to know the human heart and how it works, that they're not just going to sit there looking at the sun forever. At some point, their hearts will start to go after something. It's the way that God made us. And here's the good news. The good news is this, that Jesus does not leave his disciples in their selfishness where they would, would want to use their lives for their own good, where they would not have direct direction and purpose of what to do between the advents. God is so gracious. He says, let me tell you how I want you to spend your life between the advents. And it's so gracious and kind because Jesus does not want us to waste our eternities. So notice what it says that look at how Jesus corrects him himself in verse seven. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. He doesn't deny that the kingdom will be restored to spiritual Israel. He just says that it's not your prior, uh, your prime occupation to plot out when I'm returning. Look at what he says when the angels, when they come to him, why do you stand here? This Jesus will return just like you saw him. In other words, stop looking up. He's gone. He's returning, but not right now. But there is something for you to do with your lives until he comes. This is gracious. This is gracious correction of Jesus. Now, the question is, what must they do? Advent is a call to do more than celebrate the initial coming of Jesus. It is a call to participate in the final return of Jesus. The world says celebrate and Jesus is saying celebrate, but participate. There's something to do with your life before I return. And you see it in verse eight. Look at what he says. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. These are the final words that they heard before Jesus was gone out of their sight. The last thing he says is, you will be my witnesses. This is a commandment. This is not a suggestion of all the things that Jesus could have said that he wanted his people to do when he left. What he says right here is you will be my witnesses. This is the adventure, Christians. This is the adventure that we're in between the advent. And it has a lot to do with opening our mouths. That this whole word right here, witness, it, it's a courtroom word. It means to tell the truth. It means to give credible testimony. And what Jesus is telling the disciples that they need to be about is truth telling. Get on the stand and you tell the truth about who I am. Get on the stand and you tell the truth about my, ex my existence. Get on the stand and tell the truth about my grace. In other words, he's calling his disciples to be truth tellers until he returns. Tell the truth. Now, it, because of how the disciples, all of them got martyred, right? I'm, I'm laughing, but it's, it's, 
the word changed and it went from just being a truth teller to being a martyr who was killed because they told the truth. That's what that's what's behind it. It's a commandment. He doesn't say you might. He says you this is what you will do. You will be my witnesses. This is the grand adventure. And I know when we hear, I don't want you to think legalism, right? Wait a minute, Pastor L. We're saved by grace, not for our work. So why then are you telling me that I'm commanded to open my mouth and tell the truth? I'm telling you this because you aren't saved by how effective you tell the truth. You're saved by God's grace. And the same God who saves you by his grace, apart from your works, he also gives us good works to go and do. And one of the primary good works that show that we are bearing fruit of the gospel is by us opening our mouths, telling the truth about who Jesus is. When we hear adventure, we think of going on a hike and running a marathon and climbing a mountain and pitching a tent and living on the earth or competing in CrossFit games. These things are all adventurous. They require skill and discipline and strength and endurance and perseverance. And Jesus says, I have something for you to do that requires boldness and it requires discipline and it re requires perseverance and it requires skill. And it is opening your mouth to share the good news of the gospel. That's the adventure of all adventures, of watching someone go from darkness to light, of watching someone who are on their way to hell in the grips of sin and misery come to light and they see. That's the adventure, Christian. That is one of the adventures that Christ is inviting us to do and partake in until he returns. Now, where would this take place? He says in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. In other words, there is no square inch where I don't want my gospel proclaimed. You go back home and they're going to kill you and you keep talking and you go you go down south in Judea and they're going to persecute you and you keep talking and you go into Samaria up north and to your enemies and you keep talking and you go to the ends of the earth into Africa and into Europe and into India and into America and into Canada and Australia. You keep going and you keep truth telling. Now, what does this mean for us? It means on the one hand. If you heard, this, I, I didn't do this in the first service, but raise your hand if you if you trusted in Jesus because someone told you about Jesus. You see this? You see it. Very few of us just kind of wake up one day and we just get it. You know, some of you may have been reading your Bibles and the lights went off. But by and large, one of the main vehicles God uses to bring people to faith is right here. Right here. Your words, your truth telling. That we're standing on the shoulders of the cornerstone who is Jesus, who told the truth. We're standing on the cornerstone of the apostles and the prophets who told the truth. And we are being built into a spiritual house for God's dwelling. How? How are we building the spiritual house of God where God's people become the temple of God? It's through truth telling, telling the truth. He doesn't say be their saviors. He says, be a spokesman, a spokeswoman. 
We can't leave Jesus in the manger. We have to put him on the cross and in the grave and on the throne and ready to return. He doesn't say through your words, you will save. He says, you, you just be faithful. Just bear the truth. Just, just speak the truth and I'll work. And if you're a skeptic in here this morning and you haven't quite embraced the good news of Jesus, I just want to say, man, hold us to the task. Interrogate us. Of all the people in the world this time of year celebrating Christmas, Christians, us, we know the real truth behind it. That God himself would take on the form of a servant, that he would be born under the law, that he would be found in Mary's womb and be birthed in humility and meekness and that he would live as a teenager and, and, and obey everything perfectly. And then he would go to a cross and die and, and death could not hold him. He would go into a ground and he was sinless and he, he died for us that we have the message of truth. Just ask us. Now, what doesn't this mean? It doesn't mean that we can't buy or receive gifts this season. It doesn't mean that all God wants you to do, hey, I just want you to witness, that's it. All I want you to do is talk about Jesus all the time, right? He says, you'll be my witnesses, but he also says, eat, drink, and be merry. The Bible also says, delight in the wife of your youth. The Bible also says, a merry heart does good like medicine. The Bible also says there's a time to speak and a time to be silent. The Bible also says, rejoice with those rejoice. And so I'm not saying that all God wants us to do is to turn into witnessing machines. I'm just saying that of all the things that we will do during the Advent season, that one of the things that needs to be on that table and not just during the season, but through our lives is truth telling. Truth telling. Telling the truth about who Jesus is and what he means to us. That it might not be wise to have a 45 minute conversation with a stranger in Kroger while your kids are at home with the flu. Right. You, you see what I'm talking about? Like, it's, what does God want you to do in that little moment? Your kids are at home with the flu and you've been sent to go get medicine. Do you think God wants you to spend an hour in Kroger? In that moment in time, I got to get my witnessing in. No, buddy, you better go take care of your kids, right? God isn't a killjoy. He's not saying don't enjoy life, don't enjoy me, don't enjoy the things I give you. He's just saying those things are not ultimate. I am. Now, how do we faithfully do this? Advent and power. Here's one of the things that I'm going to say over and over and over again, that what separates Christianity from all other religions is this. What God demands, God himself provides. When he demanded Abraham to sacrifice his son, who provided a sacrifice? When he tells you, I demand perfection and righteousness from you, 
Who does he provide to be righteousness for you? His son. When he says that I will punish iniquity, who does he provide in your place to bear your judgment? His son. And so it says that when he says you will be my witnesses, if we have our right eyes of the gospel on, the second question is, well, Lord, how do you enable me to do it? What are you going to do to give me the courage and the boldness to do this? And you see it right in our passage. That, that, that they are not left to themselves. They have been so loved by the Lord, called out of darkness by the Son. They were the very ones for whom Christ made his advent for. They were the very ones he obeyed the law of God for. They were the very ones that he befriended and called to himself. They were the very ones that he loved, loved enough to lay down his own life. So do you actually think that he would abandon them between the advents? Of course not. So what has he done? What has he given? Look at it. You have heard me say this already for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Look at verses seven and eight. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses even to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. He trains us in righteousness. He bears witness to our souls that we are children of the Lord. He can be grieved when we're in sin. He can give us understanding when we're reading the scriptures. But he is a person who also gives us power. He says, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. Make the connection. What God commands witnessing, God provides through the giving of the Holy Spirit to quicken our hearts, to make certain that we open our mouths. Now, why do we need the Holy Spirit to assist us with truth telling between the advents? Because of our lack of desire. If we're honest, we do not truth tell because at times we just don't want to. I don't feel like it. I don't feel like sharing the good news. I would rather talk about this or talk about this or talk about this. And it's the Holy Spirit who says, no, you talk about this right here, right now. Because our inner cynic, we all have this inner doubter that, that, that starts to get activated. Come on. Do you see how they live in? Do you see what they have? Do you see what they don't have? Are you telling me that my mere words about a risen Savior can actually change a heart of stone to a heart of flesh? Are you telling me that, that just by opening my mouth, that God, that you use these words right here to call someone who are, who's walking in darkness into your marvelous life? And the Holy Spirit says, yes. Yes, I will use your words. I will borrow your words and your grammar and everything you've learned about etymology of words. And I will use your understanding of the gospel and your experience with Jesus. Yes, I will use your words. I will use your words. Our fear. What will this cost me? Once I talk about Jesus, now my faith is public. And I know, like, if you're like me, like, 
There are times, I'm just going to be really honest with you, I don't want people to know I'm a preacher, right? I just don't. I just, I'm not ashamed of being a pastor, but I get in public some places, man, and I just, I don't want people to know I'm a pastor because I know I got to talk about Jesus now, right? You're just living in the South, right? I want to just have a beer and just be a normal dude, right? I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk about this right now, right? And here's the thing. It, it's my fear. It's my fear that once they hear I'm a pastor or I'm a Christian, now they're interrogating me. Now they're interrogating me. Now, now if they see me losing on my kids, oh, that's the preacher man who just lost it on his kids, right? And guess what, what I would rather do? Not say I'm a pastor because it's easier to navigate through that stuff. And that pressure is real for you. The moment the world knows that you are a Christian, their eyes open up. Oh, man, Miss So-and-so, she didn't lost her temporary work. Oh, you're supposed to be a Christian, girl. So it's easier. It's just easier not to open your mouth, right? But here's the thing. What do you do when that's you? You repent. Right? You know what? I'm a pastor, brother, but I'm sorry. I failed you and I failed the Lord. And I need grace just like you. And I'm a Christian and I still want you to know the truth. Holy Spirit does that, right? That lack of wisdom. I don't know what I should say or what should I do. I don't know when or how or where to start. Can their hearts be really be changed with what I say? And the answer is yes, 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 yes. Think about what Jesus told his disciples. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for, you, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. You hear what Jesus is telling his disciples? They're about to go before kings and princes and rulers. And he's saying, don't be afraid. Just open your mouth. In that very hour, your father will give you the words to say. You don't have to polish it up and sound like an apologist. Just open your mouth and say, tell the truth. Not many of us will stand before governors and evil kings. We will stand before neighbors and co-workers and people in the grocery store. And you have to believe this. Holy Spirit is just as much at work in Kroger as he is in Kuwait. He's just as much at work in the bar as he is in Bangladesh. He's just as much at work in your firm as he is in the fiercest and most hostile country in the world. He says, take courage. If you're a believer, Aren't you glad that the Holy Spirit will not let you waste your time between the advents? He has been given to you to convict you and to encourage you and to say, hey, one of the things that I want you to be doing until I come home is truth telling. At dinner parties, tell the truth with your kids, tell the truth. With your coworkers, tell the truth. With your family members, tell the truth. And if you're a skeptic, 
The same spirit that empowers us will also give you understanding as well. I've prayed this week that we would all leave here, myself included. That we would just tell the truth during the holiday season. That when we celebrate these holidays with our family and friends, that when we go to dinner parties, we don't have to talk about the news. We don't have to talk about sports. Let's talk about Jesus and make sure that people hear the truth. What would it be like if we all were on mission this season to share the greatest news that our world has never heard with accuracy and precision and boldness and compassion. That is one of the ways that we will do Advent differently. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your reminder by your spirit that Christ has come and Christ will come again. Thank you that there is no doubt around what Jesus would have us all to do until he returns, and that is to tell the truth about you and about the gospel and about our sin and about our great Savior. Father, I pray for boldness, not boldness that is conjured up in the strength of men and women, but true boldness that comes from your spirit. Holy Spirit, you do numerous things in our lives, but one of the things that Jesus reminds us of is just this, you will compel us to tell the truth. And so would we cooperate with you this season? Might we see family members and friends and coworkers come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ? So help us, God. We also pray now as we partake of the Lord's Supper that you would strengthen us, that you would remind us that we are yours, that you would allow it to accomplish all the means for which you have given us this sweet and blessed sacrament. Strengthen our faith, remind us that we are loved for the glory of Jesus, we pray, amen.